This morning, we are continuing a series that we started um, three or so weeks ago uh, that we're calling Revelation in Red. And uh, in this series, we're taking some time to explore some of the letters that Jesus dictated to seven very unique churches in the first century um, Roman province of Asia. And our hope is that as we eavesdrop into some of the words that Jesus spoke to his churches, and as we get a sense of Jesus' heart for his churches in that unique region, we will get a sense of Jesus' heart for us. We'll get a sense of what the Spirit might be inviting us to. And uh, so that's been our, our prayer. That's been our desire. Our desire has been that as we walk through this series, our posture will be one of asking, what does this revelation require? of me. We saw in chapter 1 that blessed is the person who, who doesn't just listen to the words and evaluate them and parse them, you know, and grade them, but blessed is the person who asks the question, what do I do with what it is I am hearing? What does this revelation require of me? And that's what we want our posture to be throughout this series and no less this morning. Um, this morning we continue uh, by looking at the letter that Jesus dictated, that he spoke to the church in a city called Pergamum. Um, Pergamum was... Um, Man, it was a fascinating place. Last time, about two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna. If you took a trip from Smyrna and went up about 50 miles northeast, you would land in the city of Pergamum. Pergamum sat on top of a thousand-foot hill, which was fitting because the Greek word for Pergamum was citadel, this fortress on a hill. Um, Pergamum was a, a center for cult worship. It was a center for pagan worship. In fact, it was a home to four of the most significant um, pagan gods. It was a home of, of Zeus and Athene and Dionysus, who was the goddess of partying and pleasure, which we'll see uh, why that matters here in uh, a little bit, but most importantly, it was the home of Asclepios. Asclepios was the chief god of Pergamum, considered to be the savior of Pergamum. Um, we'll come back to that in a second, but for now, it's just key to know that cult worship, the worship of Pagan gods was pretty central and significant in Pergamum. As was true for the um, other churches that we've looked at so far, emperor worship was huge in Pergamum. It was mandatory that if you lived in Pergamum, you had to be willing to pledge allegiance to Caesar. You had to be willing to say Caesar is Lord. You had to be willing to burn incense and say that Caesar is a god. And if you didn't, you would experience the wrath of the government. In um, 29 BC, uh, Caesar Augustus, the emperor at the time, actually issued an order that a temple be built in his name. It was called the temple for Caesar the divine, Caesar the god, and the goddess Roma as well. It was mandatory 
that you go along with emperor worship. Otherwise, you would face their wrath. Um, in Pergamum at the time, uh, there was what was known as the right of the sword. The governor in Pergamum had what was known as the right of the sword, which pretty much meant he could kill anyone at any time if he didn't feel like they were ascribing enough allegiance to Caesar. No jury, no verdict, no witnesses, no trial. He could just take you out because he didn't like the way you burned incense. You didn't seem into it enough, and you wouldn't say the words, Caesar is Lord. In fact, Jesus would later reference in the text we're going to look at um, an individual named Antipas. Antipas was a follower of Jesus Christ who was executed. Um, he was actually burned in a furnace because he refused to pledge, refused to say Caesar is Lord because he already had a Lord and a Savior Jesus Christ himself. And so in that environment, you would suspect, at least I would, that the church would be timid. You would expect that the church would start to shrink back in fear and become a little more silent. But oh, no, 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 no. Not this little crazy bunch of Jesus followers. They were actually more dialed in, and they dug in all the more and continued to show and share the love of Jesus Christ, even in the face of a pretty hostile world. And it's to that group that insisted on following Jesus and shouting his name that Jesus speaks these words. And you hear Jesus' affirmation of them in what we are about to See. So uh, if you have a copy of the Bible, uh, meet me in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to start reading at verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, starting um, at verse 12. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to have the verses up here on the screen. Um, if you don't own a Bible, please give us an excuse to give one to you as our gift. We believe this is the word of God, living and active. It will change your life. If you don't own one, just head to the connection corner um, after the service and we will get one into your hands, our gift to you. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Jesus speaking to this little crazy bunch of followers in Pergamum. Here's what he says, verse 12. Two. The angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Okay, what an awesome way for Jesus to start this letter. Because, of course, Jesus has been waiting around for me to affirm the way he chose to start this letter. But this is so, so Cool. Ah, remember a few weeks ago we talked about this. Okay, you've slept since then, so let me remind you. Um, we talked about the fact that when Jesus addresses these seven churches, the way he chooses to introduce himself to each of them is by calling on an aspect of himself that John saw when Jesus revealed himself to John on the island of Patmos. Let me explain that. So when he writes the letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus starts by calling on that thing John saw, and he says, hey, it's me, the one who walks among the seven lampstands and who holds the seven stars in my hand. 
Because for some reason, Jesus believed that what the Ephesians needed to know most about him was that he walked among the churches and held the angels in his hand. And then when he wrote to the church in Smyrna, Jesus introduces himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who was dead but has now risen from the dead. Because Jesus, for whatever reason, knew that what they needed to know most about him was that he was beginning and he was the end, which is so awesome. By the way, that is a good reason why you can never fall in love with the way Jesus revealed himself to you that one time. Because Jesus has a tendency to reveal himself in the way he deems is most necessary for the season and the time that you might be. And so if you show up to church every week and you insist on sitting in the same seat and holding your hands up at just the right angle because that's how Jesus spoke to you in 2016, you might just miss him. He might have shown up to you that time in that way because your kids were acting crazy. But now your husband's acting a fool, so he might show up in a completely different way. That's why we can never fall in love with how Jesus did something that one time. If you study the Bible, by the way, he rarely performed the same miracle twice. He rarely shared the gospel the same way twice. And just when we think we're catching up with Jesus, he says, no, you don't, which is why we have to keep following him and asking, how do you want to show yourself to me? What is it you want me to see now? lest we live on some past experience. But when Jesus wants to reveal himself to the church at Pergamum, He says, hey, it's me, the one with the double-edged sword. And in the first chapter, we see that this sword is in his mouth. So it's coming out of his mouth. And that's how he chooses to reveal himself to the church in Pergamum. And make no mistake about it, the picture of Jesus with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, this is a picture of Jesus coming back to judge the living and the dead, which raises the question, why is a sword in his mouth? Um, I I had some um, friends growing up with crazy dads um, who would say stuff like this, like, um, um, I brought you into this world. I can take you right out of it, boy. And... um, Every mom on the planet is like, I beg to differ. Uh, I remember you just standing queasy in the delivery room, if I'm honest. But Jesus is saying something similar. Hey, remember how I brought this world into existence? Did I lift a finger? Did I break a sweat? No, I did it with the words of my mouth. And the way I brought this world into existence is the exact same way I'm going to take it out with the word of my mouth. I need to do nothing more than that. And Jesus is alluding to the fact that he's going to come back. And when he does, anyone who is standing in opposition to him will expect his swift and sharp, destructive judgment. The sword is coming out of his mouth. That would have fired up the church at Pergamum because they would have immediately understood what Jesus was saying. Hey, I hear there's a little governor dude running around town talking about, I have the right of the sword. Talking about, I can take life. At any point that I want it. And this is Jesus saying, that's not the sword. This is the sword. A la crocodile Dundee. That's not a knife. 
Some of you are old enough to remember. For the rest of you, YouTube is your friend. That's what Jesus is saying here. I am the true sovereign. I am the true king. Now this dude over here, he can hurt your body and he can manage to somehow graduate you from this world into the glorious next world, but I have the power to completely extinguish life from this world and the next world with the word of my mouth. This would have reminded them that the one they're following is the true king. It's not a governor. It's not Caesar. It's the king of kings with a sword coming out of his mouth. And that's what he wants to do to encourage them a little bit. But he doesn't just reassure them. He then goes on to affirm the followers in Pergamum. And he says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true. To my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, the guy who got thrown into a furnace, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Okay, isn't that interesting? Of course it's interesting. If you're not interested, maybe you're not interesting. Um, but Jesus totally pings Satan's geographical location. I can't remember seeing Jesus do this in other contexts. Some of you might, I can't think of one. He says this place, Pergamum, where you all live, is actually the current physical residence of Satan himself. Your home is Satan's headquarters. Mm. Now, um, unlike God, Satan is not omnipresent, meaning Satan can only be in one place at a time. But Satan is brilliant. He is a brilliant military strategist. Make no mistake about that. And he has thousands and thousands of demonic representatives who do his bidding all over the world with a single order. Bring down the kingdom of God by any means necessary. But as a military genius, Satan is obviously going to channel his limited resources to the places where he believes that he can bring about the greatest damage to the kingdom of God or to the places where he believes there is the greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness and of all the places in the world that he could set up shop Jesus says his headquarters right now are in Pergamum. Which is, come to think of it, is, is kind of a perfect spot for him. It's one of the global centers of Caesar worship. It is a place where there is immense pressure to pledge allegiance to Caesar. And Satan is like, I like it here. Worship anyone except Jesus, and I am fine with that. 
It's home of pagan temples with the chief pergamene god, Asclepios, who again is considered the savior of Pergamum. And if you see this god, if you see a picture of Asclepios, you notice that his symbol is a serpent. Not to mention the goddess Dionysus, who is the goddess of, of pleasure and the goddess of alcohol, drinking, or the party. Satan likes it here. I like this place where anyone is savior except Jesus. And I like a place where people who are living the party life actually believe they're saved. I like it here very much. I'm going to set my throne up right here, which is interesting, by the way, because if you stand on top of that hill in Pergamum and you look down at the road that comes from the south in Smyrna, that road is actually shaped like a major, massive throne. Satan likes it here. But I personally don't think that that was the primary reason. Those were the primary reasons that made Pergamum perfect for him. No. I think he came to set up camp because this small number of faithful and fearless and fired up followers of Jesus were setting the world on fire. Jesus says about the church in Pergamum, you stayed true to my name. You stayed locked in on my name, and you stayed latched onto my mission, even when one of your own guys was burned in the furnace. Here's what I suspect. Every bullying tactic that Satan tried, every intention, intimidating tactic he tried, every symbolic tactic he tried to get the church in Smyrna, I mean the church in Pergamum, to, to, to slow down, to back away had failed. They were pressing forward with the love of Jesus. They were reaching after him and running after the lost. Every bullying tactic had failed and he had to come and personally see about it came to maybe dial up the heat a little bit. I'm just saying, by the way, this little church in Pergamum inspires me. And I wonder if this little movement hadn't become heaven's hotspot on earth, hadn't become hell's biggest threat. Not because there were a bunch of them, but because they were dialed in to Jesus and his mission. By the way, newsflash, Satan is never intimidated by the masses. He's never intimidated by the numbers. He's never intimidated by the numerical size of a church. He's only bothered by the dial-in, by the faithful, by those who continue even under pressure to carry the love of Jesus into the darkness. That's what gets heaven heaven's attention, and that's what tragically gets hell's attention as well. And Jesus is letting them know, Satan lives here, and yet you continue to thrive. And he is affirming them that the opposition has continued to grow, and yet you march faithfully 
forward. The threats increase, and yet you continue to share my gospel. And again, I don't know about you, but I would love for this city to become heaven's hotspot on earth. I would love for this city to become a nuisance in the agenda of the kingdom of darkness. What we don't want is for Satan to be like, I've never heard of Warsaw. These people have done, what have they done? Are they a threat to us? I would love for them to know there is a movement rising up so bought in and so dialed into who Jesus is that regardless of the bullying and the intimidation and the pressures, they continue all the more to care for the orphan. They continue all the more to carry the gospel. They continue all the more to show and share the love of Jesus. But then Jesus, after giving them praise, gives them a precaution. He tells them some ways that he is concerned for them, to invite them into more grace and to invite them into more peace. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites, to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Verse 15, likewise, you also have those among you, literally, who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Hmm. So, verse 14, Jesus shifts a little bit, not necessarily in his tone, but in his focus. He, he shifts from out there to in here. This is significant. Now, you all have stood firm and fearless and faithful in the face of the threats outside the church. But I have this concern. That if you are not careful, you will be tricked and tripped up by the threats inside the church. And you can see this tone shift in Jesus. You've withstood Satan, the bully. But you need to know that if Satan cannot successfully bully you, he will befriend you. He is brilliant. If he can't intimidate you, he will entice you. And one of his best kept tricks, according to 2 Corinthians, is that he will masquerade. He will disguise himself as an angel of light and sneak into your midst and woo and win you away from chasing Jesus. This is so key for us in Warsaw, Indiana, 2018, because Satan's strategies for us, I don't suspect, are going to be scary and loud, right? We love to talk about Satan, like, oh man, he is this like red-faced 
ogre with horns who's like, ah, ah. He's brilliant. In fact, show me a passage in the Bible where he ever showed up scary to anybody. It's not his strategy. No, I think what we're going to deal with is sneaky and quiet. It's probably not going to be pagan temples and a persecuting governor. Uh, Balaam, in the Old Testament, um, was an interesting character. Um, he was an Israelite um, who coached foreign women on how to entice the Israelites to leave their God and serve foreign gods. He taught them the tricks of how to woo God's people away from chasing after him. Mm. Entice them. Seduce them. You cannot go to God's people and say to them, hey, leave your God and come after our God. They will say no. Invite them to eat with you. And don't even tell them the fact that the food that you're serving them is food that has been explicitly set aside for your idols. No, invite them to eat and tell them you want to have a conversation. And when you start to eat, and when you start to notice that, mmm, this food is delicious, then maybe you can start to tell them, you know what? This actually is a food for our, our idols, because by then they'll have a taste for it, and they'll start to realize, wait, I just ate idol food, and I didn't burn up? My parents always told me that if I ate this, God would strike me. But look at me enjoying this fine cuisine and nothing happened. Hey, guys, guess what I did? I, I ate the food. There must be something wrong because nothing happened to me and, and it seems to be fine. Don't go and tell them like, hey, leave your, <laughs> your Israelite wives and come and marry our wives. They will never fall for that. No, ladies, meet them in public places and start conversations with them. And then start, subtly start to show them a little more than their prudish, conservative women will show them. And, and keep them coming back for more. And once they develop a, a taste for it, they're going to find themselves asking questions. Why would God keep us from these fine women? Because I enjoyed some of this and nothing happened to me. Maybe all of this God stuff is a lie. And before long, there was a wave of God's people who abandoned the worship of God and were soon worshiping idols. And we read that in the Bible. I'm like, what did you do? It was Balaam. And what Balaam did was invited them into veering by compromise. Just one step at a time. And before long, the Israelites had wandered off. This whole Balaam thing is the doctrine of compromise. The doctrine of compromise. And Jesus is telling them, listen, there is a movement of people in your church who are buying into and they're starting to spread this doctrine of compromise. 
There's a wave of people rising up and they're starting to say, you can live for God and you can pledge to Caesar. You can do both. We tried it because we were in a, in a meeting and somebody asked me to say something in a different language and I said it and I didn't realize what I'd said and they said, do you know what you just said? What? I just said, you just said, you know, Caesar is Lord. No, I didn't. I, I guess I'm fine. Yeah, see, nothing even happened. You can do both. You can follow Jesus and still worship at the pagan temple. You can avoid all of this rejection and all of this pain and all of this mockery and all of this drama your family is going through and still live a life taking risks for Jesus. You can do both. And they would go to the temples and they would experiment sexually because that was part of Dionysus. That was part of their rituals in the pagan religion. And they would go and they would enjoy the food that was set aside for idols. And they would start to say things like, it's just food. It's just our bodies. And then they'll show up to church on Sunday and say, see, I told you we still love Jesus. And then the people in the church started to say, huh, that's interesting. And Jesus says, you have done so well at resisting Satan, the bully, but if you are not careful, you will give in to Satan befriending you in the church. In fact, I wonder if this isn't why Satan came to Pergamum. To tell the rest of the demons, like, listen, you amateurs. They're never going to go for intimidation. This is how you do it. Entice them to compromise and convince them that they can somehow do both. See, because if you ask them to stop caring for the poor or else, they won't do that. You've got to subtly convince them that they can chase the American dream and still chase the kingdom of God. You've got to convince them that all of this work to make more, more money is actually eventually, eventually they're going to be able to help more people in the kingdom of God and they're going to be able to eventually do more stuff for their family. Just help them to start to believe that and before long they won't even realize it's been years since they've been generous and years since they've helped anyone who is struggling. Entice them. Balaam. See, if you ask her to give up her purity... She'll say no. So you've got to say, I go to church too. I love Jesus. I was just thinking about just reading my Bible the other day. So that when you ask her to send you those pictures, she'll be like, he's a nice church boy, mom. So it's, it's probably not as bad as if he... Don't ask them to... <laughs> to come to a party and get wasted. Just tell them it's a gathering for a few of us. You know us, crazy people. But we're just going to be hanging out, doing stuff. That shall remain nameless while our parents are gone for a week. Don't ask them to get into compromising relationships. They'll say no. Tell them how they need to be a positive influence. Because, you know, how am I supposed to love her if I can't love her? So, you know. Right? 
I mean, how else are we supposed to do it and convince them that this is a great way to reach us by dating, by evangelism or whatever? They'll barely notice that they are justifying against their conscience. Oh, just get them to say it's just music. It's just music. And they won't even realize the ways that the words of Drake matter to them more than the words of Jesus. Just drop a beat. Don't ask them to spend less energy on the kingdom of God. No, just insert a few moral issues into their politics and get them to believe that patriotism is some form of substitute for missionism. Get them to spend less energy on thy kingdom come and more energy on my party win. And they won't even realize that they've not shared the gospel in years, but they have spoken for their political beliefs loudly. No one has any question what they believe politically. They won't even notice. The poison of Balaam is the invitation to compromise, to believe that we can somehow live both. Chasing the things that, that the scripture invites us away from, and we can still live for Jesus. We can still pledge to the world and pledge to Jesus. We can have both. And Jesus says, purge my church of compromise. Get rid of it. Satan will take you down. Look at what he says. Verse 16, repent therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, by the way, do you know what's scary to me about these words in verse 16? Is that Jesus doesn't even address this group in the church that's compromising. He doesn't even address this group in the church that's trying to set a foot in both worlds, who's trying to play both sides. He doesn't even address them, almost as if Jesus is saying, I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to my church. And my church are the ones who follow me without compromise. It doesn't mean they won't stumble. It doesn't mean they won't fall. But they are falling and they're getting back up in repentance and enjoying my grace and chasing after me. For these who are moving in a different direction and yet are claiming me, I'm not even talking to them. I'm talking to you. And he draws this scary line in his words. And then he calls his church to repent, which is interesting. He doesn't necessarily call the compromisers. He doesn't call those who are trying to do both to turn. He calls his church to turn. And he says to them, I hold this against you, that you've not personally done anything with the compromise, but you haven't done anything about the compromise, which is the beginning of your compromise. You know who is in the church and they are deliberately living a dual life. You know who these people are and you've done nothing about it. Maybe because they're big givers. 
Maybe because they're family members. Maybe because they're friends of yours. Maybe because they're influential. And if you did something about it, then they would leave the church. And if they left the church, then a bunch of other people might leave the church too. Maybe because they volunteer in significant roles. I don't know why, but you haven't done anything about this group that you know is chasing after this world, this Caesar, and these gods and their pleasure. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, meaning if you don't call them home, if you don't call them home, I will come and I will cut them off. Which is an interesting way Jesus addresses this whole situation. Call them back. Call them home. And if they won't listen, then kick them out. But call them home. Because they are going to experience one or two of two things. Either they are going to hear your voice in love calling them to come to life and to come to fullness in me. Or they are going to experience my decisive judgment when I show up. And trust me, they would rather hear the message of grace now than experience my judgment then. If you love them, you will call them back to me now. And your refusal to address it because I know you see it and I know you know where it is. Is actually opening the door for Satan. And is actually going to hold you back from being even more effective as the hotspot of heaven on earth. Call them home while there is still and I wonder what Jesus would pen to us, mission point. I wonder what he would say to the different ones of us. I wonder in what ways Jesus would tell us as a church, hey, when my spirit makes you aware of someone in the church who is taking deliberate steps as a way of pattern, chasing after things that don't matter, are you willing to go and call them home? Or are you going to choose silence and are you going to just let it play out because I don't want to seem judgmental. I don't want to seem like I have all of my stuff together. None of us do. That's Jesus. And that's why we celebrate communion here in a little bit because it's his blood that covers us, not our behavior. But if you love them, are you going to let them to continue in this pattern? And yet that's become the trend in the church. Like, I know how you're partying, and I know what you're doing the day before, and yet I don't want to touch it. We're in the same small group, we're friends or whatever else, but we don't want to address this. And Jesus would say, I hold this against you. You are letting these things go. So I don't know for you how the Spirit might stir you or open your eyes to take the loving step of calling someone home and saying, there is better. Let's follow Jesus together. And for some of us, this may be Jesus' indirect and gracious way of saying, choose a side. Choose a side. When I first came to faith, I was trying to be friends with everybody and be liked by everybody, which I still struggle with immensely today. And the Spirit of God reminded me of the ways I have been compromising and the ways he's calling me to, to choose a side. 
And there was an 18-year-old guy named Max who came to me and just said to me, Kondo, you are playing both sides, and it doesn't work that way. You are on the fence. And I can remember being a decisive moment in my life that somebody came to me and they lovingly called me out on that. And I remember that day, I remember actually going up a hill and fasting as a 17-year-old, realizing like this has got to change. And for some of us, that is what the Spirit may be saying to you. And I don't need to tell you the specifics, but you know the Spirit is stirring in you. You are playing both sides. You are trying to live for both kingdoms, and you cannot serve two masters. Come on home. Choose a side. Oh, by the way, because we're very scientific and we, you know, we love specifics, here's a very simple litmus test that I think emerges in this um, series of letters. If you want to know, like, where am I at? I won't give you a, a major behavioral Litmus. Team, you guys can come on out, by the way. Um, the question is about the gospel. What are you doing with the gospel? Are you sharing the gospel with the lost and the broken and the hurting in your life? And if you are not, that should start to alert you to the fact that there may be some compromise. And I have experienced this conviction in the last number of weeks majorly, right? Because I am saying something like, well, yeah, I mean, I would, but, you know, I don't want that to mess with my work and my career. Uh, well, I would, but I'm scared about what my friends at, at school might think. I would, but Satan has managed to somehow bully me away and convince me that there is something more important than the greatest commandment Jesus gave us. Are you sharing the gospel? And I'm telling you, if you just allow the Spirit to speak to you, it will reveal the things that have become, ooh, I want to hold on to this. And if I share the gospel, I run the risk of people thinking of me this way or losing this or that credibility or whatever the case might be. And it will surface the fear that the enemy might be using to bully us or it may surface the pleasure that the enemy has used to befriend us. Where are, you, where are you at? I know that in the first service, by the way, there were a number of people who sensed the, the, the presence of resistance in this space. Because you better believe that what Jesus is saying to us, the enemy will do everything to prevent you from receiving and considering it may actually apply to you. And you will think it's somebody else and this is good for that person and this might apply to somebody else. Or you may just start to feel the walls coming up. And in the name of Jesus, I pray that spirit, you would do something that allows what you want for us to break through and any resistance would evacuate the premises. He's inviting us to the greatest adventure, y'all. And the question is, will we say yes? And he wants to invite the people in our lives to the greatest adventure. Will we invite them? And he wants to invite those in the church to the greatest adventure. Will we call them home? Jesus in his grace, by his blood, invites us all to journey with him, regardless of where we are. Let's say yes. Amen.